I'm Shereen Patek, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's newest podcast where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their story, how they became the leaders they are today, and what their special power is that makes their craft so remarkable. You know, when you're the, um, the son of the preacher man, as they say, it was, it's kind of interesting growing up that way because you, you, grow up in the, you grow up in the limelight. You have to, you have to be able to speak publicly from the age of five because you're expected to be at some community event and say something about the weekly reading of the Bible. You have to be able to lead services at a younger age than anybody else. So I had this, I had this public side to me. You sort of, you grow up in, you grow up in the public light. That's David Sable, global CEO at YNR, and our guest on today's show. The son of a rabbi, his upbringing has influenced much in his life. Take his search for inspiration, for example. He absolutely loves quotes. His emails always contain a quote, and he even has a quote generator attached to it. When he last emailed me, he included a John le Carre quote that I loved, and he also loves posters on the wall, in his office, and everywhere he goes. It makes sense. David's long career in advertising has been largely inspired by multiple people. People, famous writers, lots of mentors, and also his father. So where did I grow up? I grew up in New York. Okay. Um, in, actually, no, in the Bronx, in Riverdale. I was actually born in California. My dad was in the Air Force Reserve, married my mom. She lived out there. They came back to New York. Um, I had an interesting childhood. My, my father's a rabbi. No. And my parents moved to Riverdale. There was not a Jewish community there at all. Um, it was quite the opposite. And he built a very large Orthodox synagogue and helped to found a day school and a Hebrew school and just a whole bunch of community service things. And that was growing up. It was kind of interesting, interesting place to be, an interesting way to grow up. Were you involved? In yeah, that? you know, I, I think when you're the, you know, when you're the um, the son of the preacher man, as they say, you're involved just by chance. So it's actually quite funny. Um, one of my best friends, and to this day, you know, it's almost like a brother, is, was the, uh, were the sons of the philanthropist of the synagogue. And I was the son of the rabbi. So I was like the poorest kid <laughs> in the community. They were obviously not. And yet we were best friends, but we each had a status. And so it was. It's kind of interesting growing up that way because you you grow up in the you grow up in the limelight. You have to you have to be able to speak publicly from the age of five because you're expected to be at some community event and say something about the weekly reading of the Bible. You have to be able to lead services at a younger age than anybody else. So I had this I had this public side to me that was actually quite interesting. And so, you know, getting up in front of an audience is always something, I mean, the you big... You didn't have a fear of public speaking. No, so the big joke is, you know, that there's no audience that I never liked. And <laughs> so, but I think it all goes back to then because you, you sort of, you grow up in, you grow up in the public light and you sort of have to learn how to talk to people. You have to learn how to make small talk, if you will, but it's not really small talk because you have to, you well, have to be able to speak to people in interesting ways. Well, not when you're a kid, but you just have to be able to, you have to be able to think about it. And you, of course, you see your parents being at the service of a community, of a very large community. And I think that's also a lesson. So I met some of the most interesting people in the world. So first of all, 
a big piece of that community, so remember, this is the 1950s, a big piece of the community were Holocaust survivors. Now, my parents were both Americans. My grandparents, three of four, were American. So I grew up, I was the only person I knew who had parents without accents. And many of my friends had parents with numbers on their arms. And so when you grow up with people like that, it's, it's just, it's astounding. It's just astounding. I can't, I can't tell you how inspiring it is to, to be with people. N none of them ever talked about it. But we knew, it we was, knew. It was known. We knew those numbers were there. And you would just watch these people, even as a kid, I remember you just watched them do normal things and raise children and make successful businesses. And you mm -hmm. said, wow, what, what strength of character. Yeah. What amazing people. Like, just, just think about what that was like. So I think that was, that was interesting. I think the other one is when you, you're in the community and there's just lots and lots of different kinds of people. You have people who are very learned in the religion and people who aren't. You have people who are very observant and people who aren't. Mm -hmm. um, you have all kinds of different people. And so because of that, it gives you an exposure. It gave me an exposure mm -hmm. to lots of different people. Plus, because my parents were, were sort of out there, uh, my father's very ecumenical. We had nuns at our Passover Seder, oh, wow. which was an amazing thing. We had all kinds of people who would be in our house. And so I was lucky in that it was a very open community, mm -hmm. and we lived a very open life, and I was just exposed to hundreds of different types of people. You saw a lot of viewpoints just coming in through your door, talking, going out. Very diverse. I did. I got to see, you know... Uh, a number of weeks before he was assassinated, I got to see my dad speak in um, Harlem at the Ebenezer Baptist Church with Martin Luther King. Um, I got to meet incredible politicians, people like Jacob Javits, who at the time wow. was senator from New York, who was, who was a, an incredible person. Um, Nelson Rockefeller, my dad worked for Nelson Rockefeller for many years. He was on his cabinet. My father, after he became rabbi, he became commissioner of human rights, which is actually kind of, you know, you can almost <laughs> draw, I guess you could sort of, if you really wanted to and you were very philosophical, you could draw Just a line right. between the two. But um, I was exposed to, to Nelson Rockefeller. And, you know, I grew up in a world where, if I saw him, he knew who I was, and he'd ask me questions. And, and the joke was that back in the day, this is now I'm a teenager, I was very involved in all kinds of protest things, both anti-war, but more importantly, once that was over, which, thank God, um, around things like to free the Jews of the Soviet Union who weren't able to get out and, and other things and, and stuff about Israel. So once or twice, I had my picture along with other protesters being arrested or whatever on the page of, you know, the front page of the New York Post or wherever it might be. So, you know, the famous story was that at a cabinet meeting once in, in Albany, so back in the day, the New York Post was published after 1 o'clock. It was the New York's afternoon paper. And it was a ritual. So in the morning you read the Times, the Journal, and the, probably the Daily News for the sports. But in the afternoon, no matter who you were, you read the post. Wow. So that was kind of interesting. So there I was on the front page, along with a bunch of other people. Being asked, Nelson Rockefeller, Jack, uh, David's at it again. 
<laughs> so you know, I, I I think those are the kinds of people that I was exposed to. It was just did your dad did your dad care what ki- what kind of yeah he was wasn't he yeah he wasn't happy no no he was my my dad was very conservative, um you know he'd been in the Air Force Reserve he was a chaplain he was a rabbi he, he, all these different things his politics were were much more conservative than mine I was sort of like I was always hanging you're off, a rebel I was sort of hanging off the edge of cliffs yeah I think so I I like to think of myself as a dissident. So I've, uh, it's funny, I've, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot because I use the word, I, I hate the word disruption. So it's just, <laughs> you, just and, a, just, you and me both, just to, just to move it back to our world for a second. But I always say, like, what the hell is disruption? Like, what did anybody actually disrupt? Because if you really disrupted, then you'd have no business because nobody wants to be disrupted. So let's be clear. So I always say the really successful companies are the ones who are dissidents. They create movements. They bring people together who are disaffected by something else that's happening, and they provide them with something better. And so I, I like to think of myself as a dissident. I'm always, if I don't like something, if I don't like the status quo, I try to find something better. And, you know, I'm always looking for, one of these people is always looking for heroes. Like, I, I, I love having heroes in my life, people that I can look up to or people who I think who are doing great things so that I can learn from them, but also get from their aura the kind of inspiration that I need to be able to, to do more. Mm-hmm. So, do you, do you have a lot of mentors? Do I? Mm-hmm. I have a few. Um, the one of the and, and mentors for different things. Hmm. Um, one of the key mentors in my life passed away. A few years ago, you know, it's interesting. The um, ethics of our fathers, which is part of the Mishnah and part of what, what we learn as, as Jewish kids in Jewish schools, is that one of the one of the sayings is, "Get yourself a teacher." Mm-hmm. Like you have to have a teacher, right? So, I always look around. Like I would look at people, I always wonder, like, okay, like, is this my, is this my next teacher? Is this my mentor? So it's nineteen summer of nineteen seventy four, the year before I had gone to Israel during the war. I had left school. I went to during the war, and I was really a fiery, you know, just about this whole thing. Come back to New York. It's summer. I need a job. So my dad, being in politics and working for Rockefeller, knew everybody. And he called the then CEO of New York Telephone. Now, New York Telephone was the precursor of AT&T. It was huge in those days, huge. Big building on 42nd and 6th was incredible building. It was like the state of the art. And he calls me back. And he says, okay, you've got a job for the summer. Um, you're going to be in the advertising department and you report on Monday. So I show up on Monday. I haven't met anybody, right? So imagine, and I wasn't comfortable because I hated that kind of thing. So the only reason I got it, I don't know that they were looking for anybody. It was towards the, the beginning of the summer already. So it's not like I had been interviewed it was just like this guy was told that he's getting some kid whose dad is a big politician. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is not going to be good. So I walk into his office and I probably like had rent a suit on and my hair was very long and had a big mustache. And I walk into his office and he's got a picture behind him of a sailing boat. It's beautiful. He has beautiful stuff in the office. So like that part was good. Yeah. His name is Edward A. Chapman III. Right? So here comes... Here comes David Sable, like this Jewish kid who's like fiery about his time in Israel, 
with Edward H. Chapman III, whose daughter of American Revolution, D.A.R., on both sides of his family, eight generations, Dartmouth, U.S. Navy, the thing. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, like, I'm in trouble. Edward became my mentor until the day he died. He taught me, he, he helped me hone my writing skills. He was a brilliant writer. Helped me hone my writing skills. He helped me understand what's really important. Edward was the first person who told me, like, just don't ever take a, a corner office. He mm. said, be the guy who doesn't take a corner office. He said, where you sit is irrelevant. He, this is long before, remember, this is 74, this is long before anybody had open office. He said, just sit out in the open. He, looked, he liked boiler room. He used to work. Where did he, he sit? He used to work. Well, he had an office, but he he was very involved in politics. He was a Republican, you know, also very, like my dad, very very involved in politics. And in those days, they called them the boiler rooms. That was how the, the politician, the political workers worked. Much like we have open offices today, that's exactly how it was. That's where, that ran, that's where it all began, right? The, so this notion of you sat in the, what they called the boiler room because it brought you all together and it created this heat that was really cool. He said, that's how you should sit. He said, don't ever count ceiling tiles to see how big your room is. Don't, like, it's all irrelevant. Just it's do. It's in a way, it feels like, was it humility? Was it? I think it was a little bit. I think about? it was humility. I think it was a sense of focus and purpose. He said, never lose your, never lose your purpose. Your purpose is not to have an office. Your purpose is to do great work. Mm-hmm. Your purpose is to do the best that you can do. Mm-hmm. Your purpose is to do good in the world. And he and he really believed that till the day he died. And he he pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. And over the years, as I did things, whatever I was involved in, I would always show it to him and to get his approval. Um, when I got married, he and my wife became close. And wherever we were in the world, because we traveled, you know, we lived in Israel for a few years. We lived in Atlanta for a couple of years. We, we would go to Florida for wherever we were for Passover. Mm-hmm. Ed would come. He would come sit with us. He would come to be at our Passover dinner and participate. And he was my mentor. How important is it to have those people? You know, those people that you lean on, whether it's 1977 and you're looking for someone, or today. I think we all we all need people to lean on, shoulders to stand on, people to help us up. I think it's really important. I think people, I'm not sure that everybody quite gets that these days. It's really important. You need to be, you need to surround yourself with people who are just smarter than you in particular things. You don't have to, it's not like you're dumb. It's not like, it's it's not about putting yourself down. It's not false humility. It's this always somebody who knows something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And rather than try to, rather than try to own it, why would you do that? Why don't you just like find people who you can relate to, mm-hmm. who can help you with that, and who grow themselves by doing that? So you sort of fill in the you fill in the spaces for them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I was reading. Um, I don't know if you saw the, the new book, um, Sticky Fingers, about Jen West. I was reading. <laughs> I was reading the reviews this morning, you know. And so he had a particular habit, it seems, of taking work that other people had done and claiming it for his own and saying that it was like you know back to the days of feudal <laughs> lords, and that was his right as yeah. the lord to take it. And I just find that to be just the wrong way to do it. Like, you just want people to get credit for what they do, and you want them to feel good about what they do, but you also 
want to learn from them. So I, I tend to learn from everybody. I mean, I got to tell you, we have interns who come work for us. We have an awesome intern program. And I think it's one of the best. I'm very, very proud of it. And we've been doing it for years and years. I learn from the interns. There's always something to learn. What was the last thing you learned from the interns? Um, I would say, so it was this summer. We did a, the, the interns were working on some projects for me. And what I learned was just how quickly they assimilated the information and got to a solution without <laughs> worrying about anything in between. Huh. So there wasn't an issue for them about bureaucracy. There wasn't an issue about, they just got to a solution and came to a place and actually did the work. And so it wasn't like, wasn't like they did it and said, okay, David, like, here's the idea, and we're going to show you a PowerPoint. They walked in, somebody flipped, open a, uh, somebody flipped open a laptop, and there was a little animation that solved the problem, and we took it to a client. Wow. That's, how, that's how great it was. So I think that there's always, there's always something to learn from people, and I think it's important. To, when I was a senior in high school, we had this opportunity um, that had started in my high school the year before. So it was kind of liberal east side Jewish kind of high school where, you know, after you get accepted to college, basically it's a waste of time. So they understood that. So they started a work program and you could go work someplace, but there were caveats. You couldn't take money. It had to be an interesting job. And technically at that time, they really wanted everybody to work in a lab. They wanted you to be sort of more altruistic, more scientific. My dad had two friends who had an ad agency in New York. Okay. Um, very local, very interesting, very retail-oriented, but very they were one of the biggest, at the time, buyers of local media. Mm -hmm. So they did car dealers, and they did um, Orbach's department stores, which was a, a department store at the time, and a dairy and some other companies. And he said, you know, why don't you go work for them? I think, you know, you might like it. Mm -hmm. So I went to work with them. And What kind of work? So, well, I was just like a kid. I'm in high mm -hmm. school, right? So you're the intern. So you're like, you're, you're getting coffee, you're sitting there. But, you know, you sat in meetings and I learned. So at the end of the first week, I had learned how you traffic a job and how you do these. In those days, it was in a paper bag with a thing. on. You know, it was, it was cool. And there's a studio and this is how you do all the work. One day, a client walked in. This is a true story. One day, a client walked in, Weiss Glass Dairies, and said, oh, is you know, Alan and, and Jeff and I said, no, well, can you take a note? Can you take a brief? I said, sure. So what do I know? So the guy starts telling me what he wants and he's explaining it to me. And he had the, um, there were actually two things. One was they were having, they, it was, I guess this must've been May. And in May, June, July, they were starting to sell juices, juice, juice type drinks. And I think there were four of them, four or five drinks. And then they were doing some bicycle thing. And he said, okay, so this is it. We need an ad and we want full page. And, blah, blah, this is, and he does the thing. So I take the brief. I write up the, the ticket because I had learned how to do that. And then I'm sitting there thinking about it. I'm noodling it. And I had an idea. So <laughs> I wrote out a headline. I sketched like a little something out. And I went into the studio. And I said to the guy, oh, yeah, this comes from Alan. I said, this is how he wants you to do it. Da -da -da. By the time they get back, it was all done client loved it and that was the first ad that i had ever written and designed and then they hired you right? and i was i was blown away yeah so so the truth is i sold them copy <laughs> for the next five six years um all kinds of copy i do i did a lot of i did a little bit of tv a lot of radio print 
Was that the first paycheck you got? Or were there um, jobs before that? It was the first actual paycheck. What I used to do, which actually, <laughs> it's always, I haven't thought about these things in a long time. But on Sundays when I was in high school, so I had a, a partner, Judy Levine, still a friend. She was in my class in, in school from kindergarten, I think. And Judy played guitar. And I did some magic tricks and told stories. And we did children's shows. And Sunday afternoons, we would be pretty well employed. I think the parents loved you. We had a good um, time. Tell me about, uh, do, you remember the, do you remember an interview that's ever stuck with you throughout your career? Oh, yeah. I'll tell you the worst interview I ever had. I like to start with the worst. This is absolutely the worst interview. So <laughs> I was working at YNR. And I'd been in the training program. I had was just basically graduating the program, and I was invited by an agency to come and interview for a job. Now, the reason that they needed somebody was because it, this was Wells Rich Green. And back in the day, Wells Rich Green was the original boutique, and they had just won Procter & Gamble. And that was a big deal. Because Procter, I think maybe they were the 12th agency or the 13th, it doesn't matter, but, but there had not been an addition to the roster in years. And this was a big thing because they were an upstart, it was young, they didn't have the processes that these other agencies had. And so they needed to very quickly hire a bunch of people. And a recruiter calls me and they figured, wow, you know, I got trained at YNR, I must be smart, I must know something because I've been trained. So they said, would you come and be interviewed i said sure wow that's awesome you were interested so i go to the, <laughs> i go to the i go to the interview now you have to understand i'm just a kid but even as a kid you know in my little cubicles shared first i had a shared office then we had cubicles but you know i had posters hanging up and stuff much like i still do today by the way it's like you know all this stuff very personal very you know feeding my add just like kind of crazy stuff so i walk into this guy's office there's nothing there's just piles of files on the floor, on his desk. There's not a picture on the wall. There's not a personal picture. As soon as I said, I'm screwed. Like I walked in, wow. I knew I was screwed. I can't explain it, but literally I walked in. And I said, there's no personality. Mm -hmm. There's no life in here. This is it. I'm dead. Now, the truth is that they were actually, at that point, they, were, they had asked me to come in for something else. And so... I look at the, I just look at him and he asks me a question and it was like a technical question, but it was related specifically. And I said, well, you know, I never learned that, but if you explain it to me, you know, maybe I could figure it out. He said, no. And he said, it gives me a calculator and I just got up and walked out. You just left? Yeah. I just got up and walked out. I didn't know what else to do. I was humiliated. So I called the recruiter and I said, look, I'm humiliated. This is like, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I I didn't know where to go with it, right? I would, I didn't know if it was me. I, I was. She goes, "Oh my God, just don't say anything. Just go back to the office. Don't worry about it." 
I hope you're enjoying the podcast. After the break, David shares what he does when he interviews someone and how his first hire ever was the smartest person he knew in the industry. Stay tuned. But right now, a quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product. Join our community to get a firsthand look at how digital is transforming the world of business. You'll get Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and invites to member-only events. It's only $395 a year. Please sign up at digitayplus.com. And for you, our podcast listeners, we have a discount offer. To get 10% off your subscription, enter the code podcast at checkout. Now, back to the episode. Later that same day, I get a call from Charlie Fredericks, who's president of Wells Ridge Green. And he goes, I want to apologize to you. He said, come over and see me tonight. So I went over later in the afternoon, and they hired me. Why did he want to apologize? What was he apologizing for? Because I think they realized that this was the wrong guy to have interview anybody, okay. which is probably part of it. Yeah. But certainly it was the wrong guy to interview me because that wasn't what I was about. And you you hadn't been called in for that? No, but I, it was just it was so weird, the whole thing. So that was the worst. And I, I've always thought about that because when I interview people, I'm always about listening and not asking. Like I like to ask one or two questions, but I always like to let the people talk. I hate interviews where the, the guy's telling you what to do. And so luckily, I'm at sort of at this stage of my career where by the time people meet me, they've been through a battery of interviews. So like, I don't need to ask you if you know how to use a knife and fork. Like I assume that that's done. So I'm always much more interested in, so what did you learn? What did you hear? What do you want to ask me? What's important to you? And that, that changed it. This guy had no clue. And so... Do you remember the first time you managed someone like the first time you became a boss oh yeah someone. yeah it was actually in this same job was it scary it was very scary um you know i think as a as a youth leader so i had some exposure to it because you're the senior youth leader you have the junior youth leader you're in charge of kids yeah like but that's not really management that's just more sort of being accountable for people but when you manage when you're managing people at a scale it's not just about them. It's also about the client. It's about the work. It's about budget. It's about a lot of things, and it, it changes. So when I came in and they gave me this job at Wells Ridge Green, they said, okay, you've got to hire, I think it was like 15 people. And I'm like, okay. I was 21, wow. 22 years old. What the hell did I know? And it wasn't like today where if that would happen, everybody's got an HR director and a process and people and ways of doing it. It was nothing. Just <laughs> it, go find people. It was like, like, go find, like, how the hell do you find people? So what did I do? I called the smartest person I knew in the industry. And I remember, what does that mean? I've been in the industry 10 minutes, right, a year. So the person I knew was Sue Kaufman. Sue is still my very close friend. She still works with me okay. all these years later. So that was 1977. So just okay. think about it. And we're still close friends, and we're still involved in the she business. She must have said something we're really still great when you called her. Mostly, no. So she said, "I I start selling her." Okay. And I said, "Sue, look, I, I don't know what to do. Like, you're just smarter than me, and you just know all this stuff. And I'm going to pay you more than I'm getting paid. Just come." Help. And she goes, "Yeah, that was it. I swear to you." And you hired someone. And so she came, and then she helped me, and we hired a bunch of other people, and we were pretty successful. What we did it was pretty cool. We're almost out of time, but I always love to ask this question to everybody. If you had to write a book about your life, what would you call it? I would call it The Rabbi's Son. 
it's an important part of who you are. Did you, do you remember enjoying that as a kid? Yeah, I think I did actually. I, I, I don't remember not enjoying it. You know, it's not easy. So if you're the son of a rabbi, one of a few things happens. You either you completely go off the deep end, you know, and you end up like on some mountaintop in India <laughs> singing Hare Krishna. You end up in therapy the rest of your life. <laughs> Or you kind of muddle through <laughs> and you manage. That was David Sable, Global CEO at YNR. And it's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like our show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And while you're there, rate us or leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Shreen Patek. We'll see you next week.